Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and today I'm excited about our guest because she is going to help creative minds earn more from their work. And for those here in Atlanta, we were really excited over the past week because they had the uh, presidential debates here in Atlanta, and it was at... Tyler Perry studio and he's a creative mind and he definitely earned more from his work going beyond just the ordinary and he doesn't have to be a unicorn because our guest today is going to show us how to get around that she's been writing producing and publishing profitably across media for more than 25 years she's taught for UCLA the Art Institute Autodesk she was a developer and senior business mentor for startup for a startup school in the UK she's managed a team of lawyers MBAs and educators and more she also has a group that provides over 25,000 writers screenwriters and producers informative face-to-face workshops. I'm sure you're ready for me to stop talking so we can hear about this awesome expert. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Nancy Fulton to the podcast. Welcome, Nancy. Hey, how are you doing today? Good, and I'm glad you could make the podcast today. Mm-hmm. Thank you very and much so, for inviting me. It's very cool. Uh, yeah, and, and I get a lot of calls and, and just people face-to-face, and there and are a lot of creatives. And I think this is probably the golden age. I want to get your take. Mm-hmm. Um, with the exception of maybe Disney, they say they are the Netflix killer. I am not so sure yet about that one. But mm-hmm. outside of that, there's so many mediums where uh, these creative minds have outlets where before we didn't have as many. And I'm sure talking with you over this next hour, we can kind of leverage some of your expertise so that it's no longer just a dream. It become, it can become a reality. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings about what it takes to be um, successful as a creative. And I've been working for – I've spent many years working uh, as an instructor, specifically supporting people who want to earn a good living, doing what they actually love. And – one of the things I think is most disabling is when people believe that what they're looking for is someone to approve their work and someone to say, it's okay for them to create. Uh, They're looking for somebody rich and wealthy to take an interest in them. When the truth is that if they gather an audience of people who actually like their work uh, and people that are willing to pay $5, $10, $20 in order to see their work, they pretty much can write their own ticket. And it's that, uh, it's that search for the audience that actually truly loves you that really matters. It's not the when you have that, it's easy to get approved by people in Hollywood. You know, you go if you walk into somebody's office in Hollywood and you say, "I have a hundred thousand people that like me very much." They tend to be a lot more interested in talking to you than if you say, "You know, I have a lot of I have a really great book here, I have a really great screenplay here," or "Look, I was in that play once." So my focus tends to be uh, more on helping creatives master the skills they actually need in order to make a living, not necessarily the ones they've been told they have to have in the past. Absolutely. And so when when did you start seeing that? I think from my side, from a music perspective, it was mm-hmm. the 90s with the whole Napsters and such, and that was changing of the guard where the traditional business model for recording was, like you said, going to the studios or getting approved. And then 
Uh, you had in the 2000s, you had social media, and so record labels were actually looking at your social media profile and your, and your fans before they would sign mm-hmm. you. It was more of you becoming more entrepreneurial and being rewarded for that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's, there's, it's always been the case that if you've been able to develop um, a following for yourself, that you've been able to be very successful. Robin Williams was in the park in, in New York City doing mime. And then he came out to the West Coast and he started working in uh, doing stand-up, just, you know, which it was pretty easy to do even back then, you know, stand-up in a bunch of different bars. But the thing is, he was just electric. People really did just like him. And after, you know, a relatively short period of time, people would see Robin Williams um, on, the, on the marquee and they would actually turn up at that place to, to and, you know, buy those drinks and pay for the ticket to get in. So he he was another he was an example of somebody who kind of approved himself and i think that the in the music industry if you could draw a big crowd a music you know a music supervisor you know, a music um, a uh, agent or manager would turn up if you didn't have a big crowd somebody might believe in you but it, but the first step would be trying to get you a big crowd in order in order to make record companies pay attention to you so it's always been the case that if you've got an audience then it's easy for you to get revenue. And I want to be clear. It's, I think one of the hugest changes we have is that it's, ne- it's actually never been easier for you to take money from people, like to have people give you money. In the old days, you, it, you know, it, it was difficult to have, to, to, to rent a location and to get people in there and to get, to take their money. There wasn't online transactions in the eighties. You know, you really had to kind of show up at some door someplace or call somebody on the telephone with a credit card to do, to do things. Nowadays, it's pretty easy to sell tickets and to sell CDs and sell DVDs and sell um, downloads. It's a, there's a million different ways for you to present what you have to an audience and have them pay you. And that is, that has been a huge change because it means that when you have 10,000 people that love your, your, um, play or love your music, it's easy for you to say, well, if you want to get it, just go here. People will go and they will actually put, you know, they're comfortable doing transactions online. And that means that it's easy for you to take 10,000 people who want to pay you 20 bucks and turn it into $200,000. That wasn't always the case. That That's actually been the major change is the ability to accept financial transactions online. Sure. Well, let me ask you, I want to go into the main, you use the example of Robin Williams, and uh, mm-hmm. he ultimately went to California, and you've been in the business for a long mm-hmm. time. Do you think it's still important to have some of that corporate background? Does it refine what you do as an independent? I think that I think having access to very talented people who can groom your work and make it you know, more and more pretty, uh, more and more beautiful sounding is very valuable. I think you and I are both aware that in the – 80s when there was a huge infrastructure for successful musicians you got a kind of highly produced music that you don't get it it's harder to get now like music tends to be more raw now because you don't have the same kinds of producers spending an entire year on an album you know or not just producers but 15 sound engineers and you know a a huge orchestra so i think in terms of having talent the ability to acquire talent to work on your projects that has changed. But I also think that uh, people don't care as much about, a lot of people like more unique, and uh, I want to say raw, but it's kind of, it's not raw so much as authentic, want more authentic media. You can look at a lot of 
films that have been more successful when they've been kind of rocky looking, you know, like stuff that's been shot in a single room or, or uh, people, I think people are looking for different kinds of media. There's a lot of different kinds of people looking for different kinds of media. We're more diverse in terms of the content that we want to buy. And it makes it a little bit easier for artists to find in a market when they couldn't have in the past. And it also means that the kind of content that they have to produce may be easier for them to produce. Right. I, mean, it's, it's, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's just a lot more diversity now in terms of the amount of content that you can sell and the audiences that you can serve. We're not as it's not like the 1950s where, you know, there was going to be, you know, the six guys that do rock. You know, they were the rock people. <laughs> now you can have a lot of now you can have like a lot of diversity when it comes to musical styles and the, a lot of and people can gather up an audience, you know, from all over the country that happens mm-hmm. to like their work and they can become very <coughs> successful even when they're the only kind, they're the only person that produces that kind of work. You know what I mean? It's, you don't Absolutely. have to fit in as much, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and mm-hmm. so let me ask you about when you're talking about authentic media, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking, I mean, it's 2019. So we're about 14 years of YouTube being in existence. Yes. And mm-hmm. so every couple of years we have these algorithm updates or uh, end of yeah. the world, people screaming from the hills. And the mm-hmm. current argument is, well, YouTube wanted that authentic media initially, and it was grainy, and those videos actually really did well. Um, mm-hmm. Now it's, you know, it's a profitable model, and so you have more of the corporations getting in, and so authentic media feels somewhat threatened. Do you think that mm-hmm. these platforms – want authentic media just to kind of build up that content base and then ultimately move on to the more professional polished arena? Well, it's actually kind of an interesting thing. I recommend strongly that people don't use, uh, don't use YouTube. And I recommend strongly that they uh, don't use uh, Facebook really to sell media. So here's the thing. The only way that you, as, as a, Creative professional, the only time you really win is when you have people's email addresses and, and or telephone numbers so you can get back to them again, right? That's how you win. And you'll notice that every single service that you sign up to, whether it's uh, YouTube or um, even Amazon, certainly uh, Netflix, in all of these platforms, what they care about is when you sign up, the first thing they get from you is your email address, and then, and then you can have access to some content. And the reason is that they realize that if they have your email address, they can, they can feed you content and feed you opportunities going forward. So when you're creating your content, when you just post it up on YouTube, what's happening is people can go to YouTube, they can find your content, but you don't get any benefit out of it. It's very difficult for you to push people to YouTube and make them buy your stuff. It's only, the only people you can actually you know, they get, they might get a subscribe notice, but they get 50,000 subscribe notices in a day, um, you know, like, or notices that, that they have subscribed to something that just posted a new video. It doesn't really provide a lot of direct benefit to the creator. Whereas if you post your content on your site such that when people, in order for people to see it, they actually have to give you an email address. The next time uh, you want to reach out to them with something that may be free or maybe something that you, that you, they should pay for, you have the ability to do that. Whenever you work through an intermediary platform like YouTube, that's not possible. You can sort of do it on Facebook, but Facebook now charges you to contact people that are following you unless they're a member of your group. And even then, I'm not sure how, you know, get, getting them to actually pay you the drag. 
So it's really just better if people go to your website, get your content, you know, by giving you an email address so that you can reach out to them going forward. And that that's really easy to do these days. There's a huge um, number of tools like gumroad.com. If you go to gumroad.com, you basically just post an image, post a description, and uh, upload the video or the audio file or the whole album or whatever you, you know, the PDF, the ebook, whatever. And then you can... Um, create a coupon code which lets you give that away to anybody who clicks on the link for free. But you get their email address and then you can reach them again. But if you, I guess what I'm trying to say is it doesn't make sense to put all of your content on YouTube because you're making YouTube wealthy. They're getting a lot of, they're getting the ability to advertise to your customers, but you're not getting the ability to reach them. So what's the upside for you? Right? And the other thing is, they're not making it easy. In the old days, they made it easy to monetize through advertisements, but now they're not doing that anymore. So again, mm-hmm. what's the upside to you? It's like, the, mm-hmm. so you really have to think about what do I get out of this transaction, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think you did a, a huge public service announcement to the, to the audience for sure in saying that the money is in the list or the money is in the relationship yes. with the list. Yes. Right? Exactly. Uh, that is exactly right. If you don't have the list, then... That's what your objective is. You know, when somebody gives you their email address, it's the same as them paying you a dollar or five dollars. Because in the future, if you if you if they like you enough to give you that email address, then when you reach out to them subsequently, there's a much higher probability that they're going to actually give you revenue. And the, your objective, your metric for whether or not you're being successful as a creative, is how many people are willing to give you their email address. If I go, let's pretend I go to a, a stand-up comedy club anywhere in the country. And let's say that I, you know, I just bring down the house. I'm just, I have, you know, I'm Eddie, I'm Eddie Murphy. I can bring down the house. Well, if I tell those folks, look, you think this show is amazing? (laughs) You should see what I got online. You know, if he gets from a room of 500, uh, you know, 300 people who actually go to his website and download something, that means the next time he goes to a show and he, he talks to the, the owner of the store and he goes, look, actually I can sell out your next five performances. Cause I got 300 people, you know, I got, you know, 5,000 people who would like to see me. So I would like to get a percentage of the box office, right? That's a conversation that you can have because each one of those customers that comes to your performance is going to be spending 50 bucks, maybe 20 bucks on food or 30 bucks on, um, and then another 30 bucks on drinks and, you know, and tips and stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm-hmm. If you don't have that, if you don't have that audience that you can point to, how can you ever make that deal? And also, how can I say, look, you know, screw it, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, rent a location, and I'm going to do, my, start doing my own shows, which people do do. So, or how or I'm going to release this um, album, you know, I'm going to actually, you know, like a, I'm going to release a, a comedy set. That, like, how can you have that if you don't have the contact information? You can't get back to those people. So you, so the. People need to be thinking in terms of how is my work good enough that people will give me their email address? And if it is, then you're, you're good. You know what I mean? Like you're really pretty unstoppable. You know? Absolutely. I'm singing your praises for sure. And I definitely mm-hmm. were you're preaching to the choir here, um, but mm-hmm. I'm glad you, you just excellently provided examples of why that makes sense. And mm-hmm. it makes me think of a couple of years ago where Taylor Swift was vilified uh, the example was uh, someone had just gotten married, 
and they post the wedding videos on Facebook, but they were using her song, and so she had them take it down. And now it's mm-hmm. like, well, Taylor Swift is evil, but she was actually managing or controlling her product. Right. Well, and also I think there's something to be said for the fact that as a creative professional, there's a thing called copyright, and it's actually one of the most strongest – it's one of the strongest um, forms of property protection we have in this country. So – but it has to be enforced in order to remain in effect. If, I, if you continuously let people violate your copyright, and especially if they do it very publicly, if they continuously do that, you do lose the right to be able to say, that's mine, don't steal it. So that is why you see musicians going to politicians and saying, you know this song you keep using? I did not, we did not authorize that. Our music label didn't authorize that. You haven't licensed it. Don't use it anymore. One of the reasons they do that is because if they don't enforce their, first of all, sometimes the people using it are stupid. And second of all, because the people that are stealing that content are making it so it's easy to steal that content in the future. And it's, especially for musicians, it, as you know, it's egregious, right? I mean, people will routinely, they'll routinely steal music. It's kind of tragic, actually. It's harder to steal a screenplay and harder to steal a play because I can usually, ca- you can catch people doing it. You have to mm-hmm. advertise a play. So if I, if Matt, you know, you want an exciting few hours, try um, saying that you're going to do a David Mamet play without his authorization, because I guarantee you, he, he will be sued. And I, I like the fact that you worked with or continue to work with attorneys, because on mm-hmm. these, and we're not bashing social media. I think you want to leverage it. I want to get your take on that. But yes. uh, there's so much legalese on that that no one reads and one of that part of that fine print is we own everything that you post on social media so you'll Mm -hmm. you know you have a picture with your dog in the backyard and now it's part of a commercial when you're watching tv on sunday right well it's not it's actually not supposed to be and you can certainly fight back but what i would say is that YouTube, one of the reasons that YouTube is difficult for me to like is the fact that early on, it's completely capitalized on its ability to steal media. You know, YouTube was a company uh, later purchased by Google, and they had incredible amounts of um, stolen content. And the big studios, when you register your work as a musician with the performing rights organizations, uh, like um, ASCAP and so forth, what they do is they inform YouTube they better stop stealing music. They also inform restaurant owners that they better stop, stop playing music illegally. They actually aggressively defend your rights and make sure that when people do use your work, in theory, you're going to get paid for it. So that's something that musicians have. But what's interesting is if you have music that is not registered with PRO and it's made available on YouTube, YouTube doesn't stop that use. So, you, so it's kind of leveraging the fact that they can steal music with impunity. They can allow the theft of music with impunity. And that's because YouTube says, we're not a publisher. We are a, um, we're, for lack of a better word, a forum. We're a place where people, we're a platform where people post things. We're not responsible for what people post. And it's like, except that you sell advertising on this platform. So you're monetizing stolen work. So I think that does actually make you a publisher. I actually do believe that both Netflix and um, you, sorry, both, sorry, both, not Netflix, both uh, Facebook and uh, YouTube should be treated as publishers 
and I, that means that they should be responsible for uh, enforcement of copyright. And they should know, you know, like heavy duty. I mean, right now you can inform them they're going to take it down, something down. But I've never had that actually work in any kind of timely fashion. If I, if somebody posts illegal music or a video that that is illegal, if it's represent, if it's protected by one of the big studios, um, that might get taken down. You know, if it's music by, you know, insert big name band here, that might get taken down. But if it's just you, you know, an original composition that you've created that somebody is stealing and you file a takedown notice, that's not going to happen. And meanwhile, the person that posted it can be earning ad revenue, right? Mm-hmm. From the, even though you can't earn ad, ad revenue, even though you cannot directly because you don't have the right relationship with YouTube. Mm-hmm. And you know what that relationship is? How many audience, how many subscribers do you have? Right. So even so even YouTube cares how many people are following you and they allow people to have a lot of followers to post content that they don't own. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. the whole thing is like I I don't like those platforms from that perspective. I think they should be treated as publishers and I think they should be held very accountable whenever stolen property ends up on their site, because I think it is making it so musicians can earn a living. Musicians particularly, actually. Sure. And then. That's why we're talking about helping creative minds earning more for your work. And mm-hmm. what comes to mind is I don't remember the artist's name because uh, I guess <laughs> I'm out of that demographic. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. somebody told me, mm-hmm. I was like, Grandpa, you know, they call me sir. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm and like, oh, I can't. I've lived longer than you, and you may not live as long. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they're like, sir. I'm like, okay, I got to get out of this medium. So, yeah. so anyway, this, this artist, um, they leveraged, uh, they just had just come out. They're from mm-hmm. Alabama somewhere, I don't know, Bible Belt somewhere. And they went on, uh, what was the site? It was, um, they posted on YouTube, and they posted on, uh, oh, man, I wish I could remember this site now. I'm ruining it. Um, at any rate, the it, this site was huge. It was a big media site, um, mm-hmm. and they posted it, and they got like a billion views or whatever. And he mm-hmm. didn't get any money from it, right? Mm-hmm. And so how do you have faith in yourself in that, you know what, I need to use and leverage these these major platforms, like you said, these publishing platforms, because no one else will know me. I just have my rinky-dinky website that I just posted on Wix yesterday. How do you make that I jump? Think, I think one thing you do is you make sure that when you post content on your um, on YouTube or any of those other sites, it's, it's clearly labeled. And you make sure that, it, that uh, people know how to get to your website, and you make sure that in the description on your um, – if it's, if it's a video – you make sure that you actually put in the, uh, you know, the URL that they should go to in order to get something more and something better. Uh, I think the, and then if you if you're going to buy advertising, buy advertising that points to your own media, so that that gets to be the one that's the popular version, not the stolen version that somebody else posted. But I really find I really think that. Uh, Again, music is one of the hardest things in the sense that it's hard, unless you watermark music, it's relatively difficult for you to prove, to, to create that connection, to tell people this great song that you just heard is available at 
um, this particular website just because the media doesn't allow for it. But if you're doing video or you're doing books, you certainly can do it, and you, and you absolutely should. With music, it's a little bit more complicated, and I think you basically end up have to, having to create music videos where the where the the images are as important as the work. Do you know what I'm saying? Is the audio, and that's because sure. the video will will take off, and that is one of the reasons why videos have taken off. Why people create videos is because it 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 makes more compelling set of images. You know, it's a more compelling media for, for sites like YouTube and sites like Facebook. But it's a difficult, the, the, the most important thing is if you're fo- constantly focusing on how do I get people to my website? How do I make it so that I, people get to my website, they download something and I can tell them how to give me money for my next album or how to give them next, um, give me money for my next performance or how to give me money for my next, book or audio book, how can I reach them going forward uh, to tell them about my best work so they can buy it? If you can keep your focus on that, it means that you'll, you'll end up developing an audience that gives you the money that you need in order to be able to buy the advertisements that you need on, face, on Facebook and on YouTube to drive traffic to your website instead of driving it to somebody else's uh, website when they pirated your work. You know what I mean? It's like to some degree you have to have money to, in order to be able to fight that fight. And to have sure. the money, you have to be able to have an audience. You know? So I have an 80s question for you. Did mm-hmm. video kill the radio star? <laughs> Actually, it kind of <laughs> did, didn't it? I mean, it's really <laughs> tragic, but it kind of did. I mean, that all of a sudden just radio wasn't good enough and for a lot of a lot of people. And I remember being in the 80s. I remember waiting to see the next like MTV was a huge thing because you would literally watch the videos and those mem- those images would become an indelible part of the song. And mm-hmm. it, and also you would tell people, go watch the video on, go watch the video on, go watch the video. And mm-hmm. so I think it did, I think it did make radio kind of a second class citizen. And I definitely think the internet made radio a second class citizen. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. I had a, I had a friend come in uh, from out of town, and he was like, what are you guys listening to the radio? And I was like, no one listens. What are you talking about? Like, we're not listening to the radio. And yeah, do you not have a cell phone? That's what we have. That's the radio, and we can listen to any station worldwide. So. <laughs> and I heard this independent artist say this, and I want to get your opinion on this. He's in your neck of the woods, too. He's in uh, Los Angeles. And what he said was, that we've been, we, the consumer, has been, have been mm-hmm. conned. And, and what does that mean? So uh, when you, in the 90s, you probably were like me and, and hung out in record stores and such, and you got the, the experience, you, you held on to the vinyl or whatever, right? And so mm-hmm. your outlay may have been, I don't know, $15, $20. He said, mm-hmm. but today you're paying monthly for the stream and you're paying forever. So <laughs> you're actually paying mm-hmm. more than you paid a, a generation ago. What's your take on that? Well, I definitely think two things are true, actually. The, whenever you have a DVD, an old-style DVD, DVD or CD, you were allowed, actually, to make backup copies for yourself. Like, you actually could. Like, you know, you'd go and you'd buy the latest, you know, Pretenders album, and, you know, it was possible for it to get scratched. So you had a right to make a tape backup of that so that you could listen to it without damaging the original. It was actually in the licensing. And that's absolutely what you cannot do right now. I would say that it is 
more unusual for people to pay uh, as much. Like used to be you'd buy a whole album for 10 or 20 bucks. Now you basically just buy the songs that you like. So that's one thing. The other thing is that streaming services like Spotify, a lot of times you can listen to those things or Sirius XM, you know, you can listen to those things. And the authors, the creator of the works may be not getting such a lot of money, but you're certainly getting access to quite a bit. So I think that the consumer probably won that transaction compared to the artist. But I think the people that really run are the people that are providing the hosting service, which is, you know, Sirius XM or YouTube or um, all of these other platforms that mm -hmm. basically gather up huge quantities of content and put them available on demand. I mean, mm -hmm. there's no doubt, certainly no doubt that that's true for Amazon. They've certainly won. They have the GDP of a country. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. As as we about to embark on uh, Black Friday. so Yes. Uh, yeah. No, seriously, I'm sitting there, I'm looking at this thinking, God, those people are like, those, and again, think about what those people did right. They have everybody's email address. And I remember, you and I probably both remember when, I don't know how old you were, but my first consumer, I created a website that uh, provided training online in the ni 1996 is when it launched. And it was kind of me and Amazon out there for a long time, you know, like, I would tell people, well, I'm basically writing a book that just gets better and better and better. And they go, nobody's going to pay you for something that you do, you deliver only online. And I go, but they will. And then simultaneously, I remember there were all these things for Amazon and they were selling books. And I said, look, they take, they take money and then they send you a book and then, or they'll send you a DVD, they'll send you stuff. You give them money and people give me money sometimes. So it's what's different. And they go, well, you know, Amazon's never going to work either. It's going to fall apart. And I'm like, I don't think so. I think it's going to be okay. <laughs> and it's so, but it's, but th what they did right is they had, they had people's contact information and they market to them all the time, which is one of the reasons they have all, all those movies up there. It's mm -hmm. Every time you see that logo go by, you go, oh yeah, Amazon, that's where I buy, that's where I buy things. Amazon, mm -hmm. they, sell, they don't just sell movies, they sell books. And movies are great for them to sell because there's literally no cost once it's hosted. You know, they just basically post the content and then it's only bandwidth when people actually watch a movie. So talk about like making millions of dollars or hundreds of millions, billions of dollars selling electrons. It's all, I have a lot of respect for <laughs> the technology involved in Amazon because <laughs> those people, it's like printing money. You know? I wish I liked business better. Well, it's yeah. funny because you're talking about being a disruptor, right? And so yes. I'm sure you've seen the photo, too, of him in, I don't know, he's probably in some strip mall or something and paying mm -hmm. uh, $50 a month for <laughs> for Amazon starting out, right? And he had, he right. had this dream. And like you mm -hmm. said, there was the, the conventional wisdom of nobody's going to do this. And mm -hmm. it it made me think of this week, I want to get your opinion, because, you know, everyone was glued to the unveiling of the Elon Musk truck, and mm -hmm. the windows didn't work like they were supposed to, and, mm -hmm. you know, people are going to write them off for that, but 10 years from now, there will be those trucks on the road. So Absolutely. what do you think about disruptors? I, th I'm, I'm think disruptors are... There's good disruption and bad disruption. You know, like the first guy who decided to shoot up a school was probably a disruptor. Well, we don't like that guy at all. So disruption changes society and it changes things in huge ways for both good and ill. You know, Donald mm -hmm. Trump is a disruptor. You can point to a million disruptors that maybe we're not all so fond of. 
Um, and I think Elon Musk is kind of a, a perfect example of that. He is incredibly ambitious and he, he takes on the kind of projects that almost nobody else will take on. And I think that he is going to be remembered. He, I think he will be remembered for a long time. He'll have, a, have had a major impact on our society. One of the reasons, because he's one of the first people who's a private individual or private company uh, to decide to take on space, things related to space travel and satellites. And you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's incredibly ambitious. And that car that you mentioned, what's, uh, cars are actually one of the most obnoxious things on earth to innovate in. DeLorean went out of business and he did have a really good car. Uh, and he was going to crazy things, trying to keep it going. But the returns, for, there are tremendous returns to scale by, for producing things like cars in huge quantities. And you have to have very deep pockets to sort of enter that industry. And as successful as Musk has been, he has not necessarily got quite deep enough pockets to be able to get that car. You know, that's going to, that's going to be expensive, you know, and I think he may very well end up being successful, but he could probably have invested his money in other things that would have been easier to make a big, to make a big return on. The interesting thing is I don't think he cares. I don't think it's all about money for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the the other thing uh, I want to ask you because I think he was a part of PayPal and sold PayPal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so he could have ridden off into the sunset. And, you know, he had his pile of money and he could have been drinking Mai Tais. And I'm sure what you're, we're talking about creative minds. Does it ever end? Mm-hmm. Is there an end goal? Like I want to sell a million uh, I want to have a million people view my video, audio, and then right off to the sunset. What, what keeps you going? Is there an inner fire? I don't think there's. I don't think there's. Uh, most creative people that I know, most very, most incredibly uh, successful creative people I know, are the very definition of driven, and what they do for fun is what we call work. So Elon Musk, that risk, those risks that he takes and the businesses that he builds, that's what he does for fun. So the more money he gets, the more success he enjoys, the more he wants to do that. And so it's a kind of a perpetual motion machine. These people don't have the same, don't, don't want to rest. It does not, sometimes they have a desire to be, um, someplace quiet for a few hours or a few days, but generally speaking, they don't. They don't. Their idea of rest is what is that which they do, right? Just like famous musicians don't really. Let's put this one: not famous musicians, very talented, very successful musicians. When those two things are put together, the ones that go big, they go big because they're eating, breathing, and sleeping it to almost to the sacrifice, and usually to the sacrifice of every single other thing in their family. They are. They are very driven to do this thing. And actually, it's sort of a segue that I'll just mention, and I think it's something that helps. It's been, it was helpful to me, oddly. So my dad was an engineer, and I remember I graduated from college. And I went home, and I was explaining to him I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. And somewhere on you know page two of whatever it was I was saying, he looked at me and he said, are you trying to ask how to get rich? <laughs> and I go, yeah. And he goes, okay. He says, this year, and he drew, he drew the bell curve, you know, the standard bell curve that we all see when they talk about, you know, intelligence or anything else. He goes, this is a bell curve for every single property in the world. Um, you, 
that you could possibly have. You fall somewhere along this curve. It could be something, you know, uh, you could you, you fall here for your height and you fall here for your verbal ability and here for your mathematical ability and here for your entrepreneurial ability. He says, now, that's really a very meaningful thing. He says, if you look at Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is in the top 1%. He's in the third standard deviation away from the mean for height. Now, if Kareem Abdul-Jabbar happened to have built his career as, say, or tried to build his career as an airline pilot, well, most of those guys are about six feet tall because, you know, or less than six feet tall because um, cabins are small. So he would have been battling his height every minute of every day. It was going to be somebody that sold cars. He'd have exactly the same situation. In fact, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has to think about, he can't even sleep in a standard size bed. He's too tall. Fortunately for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he chose to be a basketball player. Now, he says he has an immediate strategic advantage, which will always put him by default in, in his, he has, uh, he was high on athletic ability generally. So he has a strategic advantage that will always play out in his to his advantage. He's playing to his strengths. He says, if you have to understand that that which makes you the most, that will make you the most successful is the thing that will wreak living hell in the rest of your life. You have to go with your strengths because otherwise they become tremendous disadvantages. And the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that is true. That, if, that you need to understand what you are naturally good at, which you are na- that which you, are natural, you naturally find much easier than other people. And you have to go with that strength because otherwise it does become a, like a huge anchor. I mean, and, <coughs> and, I, and as, a per, person, person, I mean, as a personal example, I, I like to teach. I, it's, I've been doing it since my first job I ever got was actually um, teaching people how to do computer applications. I just, I like to teach, and uh, I think it has something to do with my dad being an engineer and my mom being a journalist. I have no idea, but I really, really, really like it. When I, I used to always get, you know, I always scored, you know, perfect scores and when I was teaching for UCLA, and I just was highly rated wherever I taught, always. And I had to, it had something to do with the fact I like to talk. I like to create curricula. I like to create training materials. I just like it. So I might want to do 15,000 other things. And I certainly have tried, dabbled in a huge number of different things. I mean, I've, I, you can look online and find examples of, of uh, audiobooks and stuff that I've done. But, you know, the, the thing that has been easiest and the most profitable has been teaching. And it has, it's kind of like that, you know, which I do. And I think a lot of times people kind of decide that they're going to reject the one thing that's easy and it does make things harder for them. Do you know what I'm saying? Elon, mm-hmm. what if Elon Musk did not want to be an entrepreneur? What if he did not? Can you imagine that guy working for you? <laughs> like, how's that going to work out? He's always going to want to do something you're not doing. He's always going to be talking about the next hill, the next challenge. He's going to get bored with the thing that you're currently working on. It's, it'll be a constant. I'm just, so I, I guess people, two messages. One, Consider going with your strengths. <coughs> Excuse me. And consider going with your strengths. And then maybe look at the thing that's causing you the most hassle and figure out why it's causing you trouble. Because chances are that is going to be the thing. That's actually where your strength lies. It's the thing that causes you the problem. It's because you can't hide it. You can't stop doing it. Just like Rima Abdul-Jabbar, I can't stop being seven feet tall. 
And the only thing I would say in response to the example of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was he was an actual airplane pilot in airplane. <laughs> so you can, live, you, can, you, can to, you can totally live your dreams after you've done with your third standard deviation characteristic. No, but it's, it's, it is an interesting thing, isn't it? You know, it's like the fact that they, they, when you're in school, they never tell you. The fact that you insist on doodling on every single piece of paper the fact that, you know, getting your physics questions right, you know, doesn't happen, but, you know, you've really got a great handle on perspective. They don't tell you, you know, you know, this thing that's annoying the crap out of all of us, this thing you mm-hmm. do, that turns mm-hmm. out to be the thing you should do. Because <laughs> it turns out you can't be stopped at it. Just like, um, I, so when you live out here in the West Coast, you get to see all kinds of uh, interesting events other people. Um, I just earlier this week I saw went to USC and they had a screening with Robert Downey Jr. and uh, his wife and Shane Black uh, and the producer of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and they were just talking about how much fun it was to make that particular movie well did you know (laughs) did you know that Robert Downey Jr. left high school like they called him in he actually went to my kids high school He, he went in and they said okay Robert listen you're a very bright person but, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're entering your junior year. You're not really going to graduate with the thing we have going on here. But it's okay, Robert. You can save it. You can just, you know, this summer, if you go to school, da 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 And he's looking at them, and he said, I thought, well, I have plans for my summer, so that's probably not going to happen. And so he tried to explain this to these nice people. Like, I have actually plans for my summer. So, and they go, well, we're just going to have to call your dad. And he goes, what time is it? <laughs> and they go, they go, well, you know, it's nine o'clock or nine thirty or whatever. And he goes, "Okay." <laughs> so they call his dad. His dad's like, "Yeah, I told him. I don't know what the hell he's doing there." <laughs> 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 right. So it's like so. But he, you know, you can see that Robert having Robert. Just imagine having Robert Downey Jr. as a teenager in your high school class. Right. <laughs> it's like, like I guarantee you, if that guy's in the room and you're the teacher. Every eye is going to be riveted on him every single minute mm-hmm. of every single day because that's what he does. That's his thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams, can you imagine? Like, you I mean Robin Williams got the the his instructors at um, Juilliard told Robin Williams to leave. We got nothing mm-hmm. to teach you. You're like this. There's nothing we can teach you, mm-hmm. right? So, I, I my point being, I think I like to tell people. Sometimes the stuff that gives you the most trouble turns out to be where you should be looking. It's it's like it's almost like it's trying to tell you, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. You know. So, and I also think that that if you can take that thing that that you do naturally and turn it into and turn it into something that you can monetize, can turn it into money, then you know your your career is made. You will be successful, and you'll enjoy the work that you do because it's what you do naturally. And thanks for the example with the Robert Downey Jr. I'm going to group him with my next question with, uh-huh. uh, with relation to Steve Jobs. And so uh-huh. uh, it, it may have been around, but in my awareness, Steve Jobs was the one that said that, and he said, uh, failing forward. And yeah. he was talking about, you know, today nobody has the, the first iPhone or the first iPod, right? There's so uh-huh. many iterations because you're continuing to improve. And mm-hmm. there's many examples like a Robert Downing Jr. or Steve Jobs where you may have a, a bright start 
and then something happens where there's upheaval, and a lot of people are left like that's a defining moment where they kind of go back to doing insurance or something. <laughs> How do you continue mm-hmm. being creative when you meet that first roadblock? Well, I definitely think if you're building on something that you can't, that you do naturally, that you can't, your, your third standard deviation characteristics, the thing that is to you height like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, I think you'll find that you can't choose to stop it. So I could choose, I could be a nat a natural comic. It could just be the kind of person that used to make teachers want to murder me because I always made jokes in class. And my, the first thing that always came to mind was ridiculing people. Well, I, I'll just do that. I'll literally just end up doing that in, uh, in my insurance job. I'll end up doing that if I'm working in technical support on telephones. I will end up doing that if I'm working retail. I'll end up working doing that if I'm at a construction site. The question is whether or not um, that thing which annoys people will end up being something that I monetize. And I think when you look at people, I don't think having a natural talent or natural ability all, doesn't mean that you don't also have other aspects of your life. When you look at Robert Downey Jr. and you look at Steve Jobs, you can see that they did have other aspects of their life that, they, that were very, very seriously out of balance. And Steve Jobs particularly seems to have had so Steve Jobs' natural talent, I think, to a significant degree, had something to do with being incredibly critical, like he, so much so that he could not choose not to be, right? He could, for him, not telling you the truth about what he saw when he looked at your design was incredibly painful because he could see that it, how it was broken and he could see how he, it needed to be fixed in order to be better, in order to work more the way he wanted it to work. Like it, to him, the way that seemed right. So he was kind of a living hell for people at his office to look because he would, as, as time went by, he, he, he and they're working on higher and higher end projects. He would just get to the point where he would look at something that you'd spent six weeks or six months on and say, that is crap. Or you, you'd bring him something, somebody would, a, member, his team, a team would bring him something and he wouldn't just say, that is crap. He'd say, that is crap and you are fired because you didn't get anywhere in his strike zone, right? So I think that, and but it didn't necessarily mean that he had an incredibly successful personal life, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that that is true for a tremendous number of these of people mm. that have the, the more, it's difficult to balance the farther out you are on that parameter, the more it's going to impact your day-to-day life, you know? And I want to mention, sometimes the third standard deviation characteristic that people have is something very minor, but it's, it's, it, it can prove critical to them. I may have an incredibly good sense of smell, just so much so that, you know, when I'm in my, like, I have to be careful about the cleaning products in my house, right? I may have that as my third standard deviation characteristic. So I can, I can choose to build my career on creating a perfume, you know. <coughs> or I can, excuse me, hold on one second. I can, excuse me, I can choose to build my career, or, I, or maybe it's the case that I can see a lot more colors than other people, a lot, lot, lot more colors than other people. Well, that starts to make me be somebody to be a, a, a designer because I can see something that other people can't easily see. It means that when people look at my work, they'll go, that is the most beautiful thing I ever saw. And they won't understand why, but it's because the colors are right. 
for the first time mm-hmm. ever, right? Mm-hmm. So it can be, these characteristics can be incredibly small. Sometimes they can also be incredibly large. You know, they can be, you know, almost unlivable. And I do think Stephen Jobs, I think that he was one of those people. His, his thing was perfect. He could not, he could see perfect all the time. He could see, we just needed to make, to make it look like this. We just need to do this. We just need to do this. And he did it on every single, every single aspect of his life. Every single aspect of his life was about perfect and the difference between what it is now and what it could be. And I just think that can be stressful. I mean, I don't, I, a lot of these times you go, I don't want, I'm so glad I don't, I didn't get that one. That would suck. (laughs) You know, or even, or even like, you know, the ability of, of, you know, when people are really good comics and they, you know, what do you do when it's the world, you know, you're living through the most tragic experience in the world. And yet you just want, you, you just have jokes coming into your head like it's like this demon that won't shut up and stop making jokes you know or i've known people that have music in their head all their time all the time like and they have really a hard time with other people's music because of that you know what i mean that's not that doesn't sound right that you know like like it, it can be traumatizing and i think creative people tend to be people who know that they're creative and are driven to be creative. It is a kind of a master they have to serve or they're punished for it, you know? Somebody wants to write, has to write, or they they feel very bad all the time. And I think mm-hmm. it's just, I also think, and I, I mentioned it personally, I also think some of the people are always, I, I don't teach craft. I make a point never of teaching craft because I do have my own work. But I don't teach people how to write the perfect screenplay and I don't teach people story and I don't teach a whole bunch. I basically really focus on monetization and helping people figure out how to earn a living from their work and how to find their audience. My focus is on making people earn enough that they can do what they love for a living. But right. I notice in passing that most of, the, most of the great, at least when it comes to plays and uh, plays and books and movies, they're madness. It's about madness. That's what you see on the screen. That's what makes you love it is the fact that it's mad. It's insane. It's stuff that, that it, yeah, who it's was compelling the, uh, Joker? You. it's compelling. Yeah, exactly. It's compelling to you because it's saying something so clearly you can't hear it and you can't stop hearing it. You can't stop seeing it. You're right. The Joker's kind of a perfect example. Both for iterations of the Joker. I really liked uh, Heath Ledger's version of the Joker. And I liked it when he said, you know, I like the fact that he told a different origin story several times. And I like the fact that he was, he was so incredibly deadly and, and yet so incredibly smart. And yet what he cared about was manipulating people, right? It was just, he was just a, a very strange character. And mm-hmm. I think the delivery of that character when Heath Ledger did it, and also again, um, with the recent iteration, mm-hmm. it's compelling because you, the character makes sense in a way you go, yes, that's true. He's, he's like, that's a personification of something that exists in the world. And now when it's a, a person, I can understand, I understand who it is. I understand the thing better, you know, like how, like in the latest iteration, the fact that he is being so abused and so abused and so abused that he turns into a monster. And then people like the monster better. Because why? Because they're feeling abused, right? It's like, and he says, well, you know, how could you be, how can you be so cool? because if I were not being cruel and I were lying down on the ground, you wouldn't pick me up. You know, it's like, 
I am showing, I'm showing you the world. And, I'm sh- and the, that's, the truth is what's selling. It's the truth that we feel this way. And we're tired of being powerless about it. And so I find that, and again, he's, again, that's another performer. That guy, he can only do that. He, there is not another, what else could that guy do? Right. Who else could he be except that guy? Like, who else could Joaquin Phoenix be? He just can't, he's compelled. And I, you know, so I think, and I think if he was starting up today, you know, the correct thing for him to do would probably be to come up as an, as an actor producer, you know, mm-hmm. so that he could basically monetize his own work. Otherwise, he'd be in a position of hoping Hollywood could see the genius. Right. Excellent. Well, that was a nice full picture for that example. Um, mm-hmm. are, Nancy, are you familiar with the hashtag opt out? I'm not. I should uh, tell me about it. Sure. So, you know, we're coming on the week of Black Friday and, you know, there's a lot of origin oh, yeah. stories and how it started. And uh, mm-hmm. you have companies like REI that started this hashtag opt out, meaning that they are not mm-hmm. going to take part of this consumerism and, and madness that happens at this time of year when people are running each other over to get $5 off of something they wouldn't have bought otherwise. And mm-hmm. Reason why I bring it up is while people are standing in line to get that latest tech item, you are doing a workshop, same time, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to talk. You were talking a lot about you know that standard deviation, and you're focusing on this mm-hmm. workshop, and, and what does that entail? What what can people look forward to with this workshop coming up? I'm actually I don't I don't think I'm doing an um um oh <laughs> yeah I'm doing um actually that's pretty humorous. So yeah, I'm doing. A, I got invited to speak at a conference in uh, Los Angeles. It's actually LostCon, which is, um, I think, one of the largest and oldest science fiction conventions in uh, California. And I've been asked to go over and talk about uh, things related to intellectual property rights and uh, basically all of all of the work that I'm doing is monetization and intellectual property rights. Uh, I my in my own work, I actually have a, I run events. If people go to nancyfultonmeetups.com, they can actually see, I actually support 50,000, a network of 50,000 uh, um, entertainment industry pros. And if you were to go up there, you would actually see the stuff that's available um, for free. And then you would actually see that there's events that I run directly. And then, but this particular one is one I've been asked to speak at. And it's based, I'll be, I'm going to be on a series of panels with people that are talking about how to protect your intellectual property how to quote unquote break into Hollywood, uh, you know, with a screenplay or something like that, which has to do with how to pitch and uh, talking to people about how to do, um, uh, how to make money off of books, which is another topic that people feel strongly about. So, but those, that's all, they're all face-to-face events. I also do a lot of online events. And in fact, these days when I'm interviewing something, somebody I think is particularly important, I do an online event where so I can record it and I can make the um, event available later. I just did one recently with a guy who does uh, teaches people how to get grants, and he um, got more than $500,000 for his last documentary by raising money uh, through grants and direct donations. So when I'm doing that kind of very technical work, um, a lot of times I'll do that online. And then I do a lot of additional work where I do face-to-face events, um, which tend to be sort of, 
somewhat uh, some percentage of the time dedicated to networking and the rest uh, dedicated to a particular technical topic, like strategies for raising money for um, projects or um, how to publish a book, those kinds of topics. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I, I was thinking about all the – we were talking earlier about all the different platforms like YouTube and and mm-hmm. Facebook and such, and it made me think of uh, Vine. It was like six seconds, and, you know, it's, it's gone now. Mm-hmm. But uh, people are on Instagram, and people got famous on all those. TikTok, there's people that are famous. And then ultimately, they have to come to the quote-unquote real world, meaning Los Angeles, if they want to, I guess, mm-hmm. that viability. And is there a fine line of, hey, I just want to be independent and, and follow my own rules, or I have to do it to a certain point so I do become viable and become part of the machine. Is that the ultimate goal? I don't think they actually or? do that. I actually, I've heard any for any direction. I don't think you actually do have to come to LA. And in fact, I pretty much recommend that people don't. I think they should stay where they are. They should they should live where they want. And they should make their art go where they live. Because the truth mm-hmm. is that, so if, let's say that I'm an independent film producer. I want to make independent films. And in fact, I've had, I had a call from a guy who says, you know, I've been making zombie movies, quite a lot of zombie movies, and I've been do. I've had several features, and I make them here in this little midwestern, in this little midwestern state, you know, and and midwestern towns in my county, and everybody's really nice and it's really cheap, and I can actually produce them for like 50k, and you know, but I just really feel do I have to come out to Hollywood in order to be successful? And I said, you, there's no point coming out to Hollywood, you know, if you if you can produce your, I haven't seen what you're showing me like the the content that you're creating is content i haven't seen and that makes it exotic and useful and it has it's your zombie movies are different from an la zombie movie and it's cheaper for you to make them there and you have an audience that loves you there and actively supports your work and wants to show your movies up on you know on your uh, in your local theaters all over your little county what's the upside of coming here if you want to make, you can sell the media here without having to come here. You know, there's, if you go into, right now, um, one could go and search for iTunes aggregators and one can find dozens of people who will actually, you can pay them a fee and they'll put it on, make your film available on iTunes and give them another fee and they'll make it available on, on Amazon and another fee and they'll make it, they'll try to get it onto Hulu for you. And then you get 100% of the revenue from that transaction. It's not a traditional distribution deal. So uh, there's not really a value to coming here to Hollywood. There's not, you need to be able to reach the people in order to sell the media if you decide that you want to make that particular deal. But you don't, you yourself, your own personal self, don't have to come here unless you're driven to do so. Some people do want to be, some people want to work on Iron Man movies, okay? And in order to do that, you got to kind of come here because you got to get cast by these people, or you got to be famous where you are, and you have to be enough in the know and have representation so somebody can say, "Hey, this crazy guy from the Midwest, you should put him in your next Iron Man movie." But that's not—that's not most people's careers. Do you know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I think I actually actively tell people, like, if you're in Atlanta or you're in any of the states where they're making films, you're well—you're better positioned than if you're here. We don't have incentives over here. It's easier if you're if you're a producer, or if you're a director, or you're an actor to stay in the state that you are. Get your you know take a thirty percent or forty percent incentive, 
and raise investment and produce your film there and then sell the media here. It's like, it's, a, it's, it's there's no reason to come here. And not, I'm not saying you wouldn't enjoy it. Feel free, you know, you're welcome. But, you know, and you'll probably be able to do, but you'll end up going home to shoot your films <laughs> because it's cheaper. <laughs> there's no upside to shooting them here. I guess that, I worry that people, because I, I, a lot of people do come here. I get a lot of people in my groups and they go, you know, like I came, you know, I gave up a good job in, in Chicago, you know, and I used mm-hmm. to, yeah, I had a big career in Chicago, you know, where I've been, I was with a big, but I thought I should come out West, you know, to, and I'm just like, well, I think you probably could have stayed in Chicago. I just think mm-hmm. that's how media is going to work going forward. It's not going to be the case that you have to be in a particular city in order to get the attention. And in fact, here, the competition is really high. Mm-hmm. You know? So you're talking positioning Very high. for sure. You're yeah, and other words, trying to get seen. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, it, I know that the airlines are kind of upset with you now because <laughs> people are putting their credit cards back in their pocket. <laughs> They're not flying to California. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's, it's just not, it's not worth it, really. It's like, and in fact, I think it can be, it's better, it's really better for you if you're in Atlanta or if you're in um, New Orleans or if you're in any place and you've got good position in the sense that you respected and admired in that location. Mm-hmm. Figure out how to get bigger there until you get to the point where you're sort of the best and best known there and then visit here and, you know, maybe we start inviting people from here there. Right. Right. So that it's better to be a big fish in a small pond than to be a a small fish in a big pond. Because as you know, there's a lot of people out here who have won Emmys, who have won, uh, for, for Emmy, they've won the biggest awards in the industry and they can't get a job. That happens mm-hmm. out routinely out here. I know a mm-hmm. lot of people who have Academy Awards who can't get work. Right? So it's not the audience is what matters and the people that support you and that want to work with you and the ability to. So why come to the place where the competition is specific? That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And we are at the top of the hour. I do have just one last question, if, you, if you're okay with the time. Sure. Okay. So I want to ask you a conversion question on your site. And mm-hmm. it, make, it makes me think of a first date. If I'm going out on a first date and I go to mm-hmm. a decent restaurant and mm-hmm. I'm about to order wine and I want to impress the girl that I'm with, but I don't want to go too far. So I have three choices of wine. Um, one, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've heard this example before, but just for the audience. Mm-hmm. So I have, there's an $8 glass, there's a $10 glass, and there's a $12 glass. And most mm-hmm. people would get the $10 glass uh, just mm-hmm. because they don't want to. Okay. So for a conversion, I can sign up for, uh, be a subscriber on your site for $20 a month or $60 a year, mm-hmm. where do you see the greater conversion? 60 actually. Of course, it makes the most sense. Because it's basically $10 a, because basically $10 a month. But actually, there's a, on my uh, Nancy Fulton meetups, there's actually a free thing. And that's basically one of my uh, favorite exercises, which uh, favorite uh, workbook video combinations, which basically just tells people like 19 different ways that they can start monetizing their work. And um, what's interesting to me is how many people actually just go ahead and decide to subscribe without even getting the free thing. (laughs) 
So <laughs> I'm a little I'm a little perplexed. I got to tell you about the whole. Uh, I think people a lot of times just try to buy an answer. You know, they want they go okay, it costs sixty dollars, and there's 140 things I get instant access to. So if I buy it, I'm just done, and I don't have to think about this again. And so I think sometimes people do that. And so, but it is uh, getting people to get the twenty dollars thing. They just don't have as much of an interest in it, and I think it's because I don't want to get charged twenty dollars again next month. Sixty dollars a year seems like a lot less than twenty dollars a month, even though you could stop after the first month. That's weird. Mm-hmm. I, I, pricing is like one of the most intense things, actually. You can, because you know, here's the thing: pricing doesn't really matter. Like. <laughs> If I tell you that my play that I'm doing, um, you're going to come to my play, and my play, I'm like, um, it's going to cost $15, which is what a play ticket might cost in most places. Mm-hmm. You know it's going to be a $15 play. If I say it's a $30 expense, you're going to think it's a $30 play, which you're going to assume is going to be significantly better. So why wouldn't I say it's a $30 play? And why wouldn't I make it a play that was worth $30? Like what could possibly be the difference in expenditure? between making a play that's good enough for $20 versus one that's good, or $15 for one that's $30. Might as well make it the $30 play. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? It's like, so people arbitrarily pick the price of their, of what they're going to sell. With, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know about you, but when I go out for a date, I'm, the chance that I'm going to, you know, get out from under that for less than 80 or or $100 for a weekend night is really pretty small, especially if there's mm-hmm. going to be a play involved. <laughs> So it's kind of like, I, I, I mean, you might as well figure out how to make your play worth $30. And the other thing is, I don't really understand why a lot of, um, uh, I don't really understand why a lot of people that are doing plays or performances, which I think are really the best possible form of marketing, you know, I say, you know, have a bottle of wine and, you know, pass out wine when people first come in, mm. right? I mean, it doesn't cost that much to buy the wine. And that way they know that they're welcome and they're really glad that they came. And also maybe puts them in a better state of mind to really enjoy your work and it sets you apart and it's a cheap benefit. And if you're going to charge $30 per ticket, you have $5. You have enough money to pay for the one. But it's, right. I know it sounds stupid, but it's like, you know, pricing is just one of those things that people are really arbitrary about for not very good reasons. Usually what you should do is look around at what other people are charging and charge not the top, not the highest, but maybe the next level down, and then make it that good, make it worth that, make it a good yeah. value. Is my point. I think that uh, I don't know if you knew. Did you hear about the pricing for Sticks and Stones, the Dave Chappelle special? Mm-mm, tell me about it. Okay, so <laughs> then I'll let you go. So Dave Chappelle, um, he had this Netflix special called Sticks and Stones, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. like one of the top whatever, and so. Anyway, he filmed it here in Atlanta, and then, mm-hmm. you know, he's gone around the country. So he had another filming in New York, and so he goes – in the same Netflix special at the end, he goes uh, – I don't – I'm not giving it away because it's been out for like two months now. So mm-hmm. in New York, he's like, you assholes spent $800 to come to, the, to my show, whereas in Atlanta, it was $60. Like, you could have flown to Atlanta, had a nice dinner and a hotel, <laughs> and still mm-hmm. made money. And then coming to New York. And so it's just interesting as uh, pricing and the elasticity of what people will actually pay for what you're, what exactly. you're providing. Exactly. I don't know if I'd go around insulting the folks who paid me 800 but I would, But I would 
I mean, I think it's worth pointing out to people that there that Atlanta gets some good stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like that's mm-hmm. that's a powerful thing to tell people. Hey, you know, maybe the party's in Atlanta. Maybe that's where things really people should be going. And I think I have to say, I think music is one of the hardest things. You know, people in you in, in in our day when we were younger, people made most of their money off of album sales. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, performers are, have to go on tour in order to make money. And right. I think uh, if you're a musician, it starts making a lot of sense for you to figure out how to do shows and how to make the shows worthwhile. And mm-hmm. to start thinking in terms of of creating networks of people, you know, like I, have, I know several people um, in my network who are musicians. They basically, and it's true for comics too, oddly, they have locations around the country. They kind of have this tour. And to some degree, it's going to people's houses. And in some places, it's going to like small bars and places like that. But they've created this network that allows them to earn a, you know, a reasonable living doing their work. <coughs> Excuse me. So I think that that's kind of an interesting thing for people to think about is if I have a, if I have a, if I have a blues band, how much should I be charging per ticket? And can I get that money more directly? Instead of having mm-hmm. to just go to some place and you know get paid, you know a, fra- a tiny fraction of what of the door, right? How can I make this work? You know, because mm-hmm. there's bars all over the country, and maybe if you bring your band, you can make it so that you you know you actually gather the people at that location and you you're you're actually the one taking the money. Sure. Instead of the other way around. And the hour has flown by, and I'm sure we just it touched has. the. <laughs> the surface of helping creative minds earn more for your work and how to monetize that. And where could they find out? Again, we talked about your site, but if you can give out your site again and how people get in touch with you, that would be phenomenal. Great. I mean, my stuff is uh, – I really just uh, run events um, on a regular basis, and I have a whole bunch of um, uh, previously recorded resources talking about things like how to raise money from investors, using a regulation D private placement or like sort of all the sort of really technical stuff that people know need to know in order to, to earn a living from their work as well as topics like uh, how to gather an audience. If they go to nancyfultonmeetups.com, they can find something that they can check out for free. And uh, it's one of my favorite uh, workshops specifically because it does talk about a bunch of different ways to monetize your work immediately, start monetizing your work immediately. And um, I also have, I do have like a subscription-based program and it's mostly because a lot of times I started offering a subscription just because there were so many people that would, <laughs> they would, I'd run an event and they'd pay me for it. And then, you know, they'd go to the next event and they'd pay me for another one. And at some point, you know, it's like I'm running four to six events a month. It was <laughs> like, my, I think I'm like taking up too much of your money. This is not going to be good. So I started just basically saying, it's like a frequent fire thing, which is a, it's called pro subscriber and it basically is a $60 a year. I mean, the, and the, right. the price varies over time. Like um, it'll probably end up going up in the new year just because I'll have so much more content available. But so people should check it out sooner rather than later. But she's having a black Friday sale guys. You better it's listen to this black Friday pitch. It's, it's, more like, <laughs> it's more like the end of the year pitch is actually what it is. Cause it's the, um, cause, cause the uh, price is going up based upon the, uh, because I have 140 things up there. And so next year, by the end of next year, 
I'll probably have like 180 things up. So when they're, so they're buying for the year ahead. And it's just, mm-hmm. I have this, uh, so, uh, you know, it'll probably go up to $80. It's not going to kill anybody regardless. So if, sure. but if people have questions, they can always email me at nancy at nancyfultonmeetups.com. Awesome. Well, you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza and Nancy Fulton. It was a pleasure. Let's definitely stay in touch. Absolutely. I look forward to learning more about your work. I really like the, uh, I really liked the, when I was coming onto the show and I took a look at the stuff that you were creating, it was pretty amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, we won't be strangers for sure. Good. Take care. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you so much. I really had a great time. All right. Bye.